Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. For over 175 years, four purposes have defined Hillsdale's mission, learning, character, faith, and freedom. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to our brothers and sisters at Hillsdale for their great sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Eight seven seven three eight one three eight one one eight seven seven three eight one three eight one one. With all this swirling around, different legal analysts out there, let me see if I can make some sense and bring some context to what's taking place. The key here first is the Presidential Records Act, passed in nineteen seventy eight. It's been amended since. Prior to that, presidents could own the documents, the property that they had, and so forth. Now, you know, when this first was revealed two and a half weeks ago, the search warrant, everybody was talking about the Espionage Act. And then there was a leak to the New York Times, Maggot Haberman and her cohorts, that the president had 300 classified documents. Then the argument was, well, did he classify them? Trump people said he had a standing order on classifying them. People said, no, we don't buy that. We don't buy that. He had to fill out something. He had to do something, didn't he? Didn't he? Uh, No. Since you came up in May 15, 2017, PolitiFact is a left-wing, unreliable operation, but nonetheless, nonetheless, unreliable if you're a conservative, reliable if you're a leftist. In other words, in my view, they're very, very partisan. So when they come to the conclusion that a president has a right to classify or declassify, that's a big issue. They refer to a blockbuster article in the Washington Post 2017 saying President Trump had revealed highly classified information to the Russian foreign minister and ambassador in a White House meeting. 
didn't just put the White House on the defense, it also put Republican lawmakers on the defense. They write. One of the members of Congress who commented after the newspaper's revelations was Senator Risch, Republican Idaho. According to CNN, he told reporters the minute the president, <coughs> excuse me, the minute the president speaks about it to someone, he has the ability to declassify anything at any time without any process. Is that accurate? Independent experts said Risch is on target concerning the legal powers of the president. Some experts added, however, the senator's formulation left out some context that is relevant. Experts agreed the president, as commander-in-chief, is ultimately responsible for classification and declassification. When people lower in the chain of command handle classified and declassified duties, which is usually how it's done, it's because they have been delegated to do so by the president directly or by an appointee chosen by the president. The majority ruling in the 1988 Supreme Court case, Department of Navy versus Egan, which addressed the legal recourse of a Navy employee who had been denied a security clearance, addresses this line of authority. Quote, The president, after all, is the commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy in the United States, according to the Article 2 of the Constitution, wrote the court's majority. His authority to classify and control access to information bearing on national security flows primarily from this constitutional investment of power in the president and exists quite apart from any explicit congressional grant. Stephen Atwood, director of the Federation of American Scientists Project on Government Secrecy, said that such authority gives the president the authority to classify and declassify at will, something I've been arguing. In fact, Robert Turner, associate director, University of Virginia Center for National Security Law, said, if Congress were to enact a statute seeking to limit the president's authority to classify or declassify national security information, or to prohibit him from sharing certain kinds of information with Russia, it would raise serious separation of powers constitutional issues. In other words, the president cannot be covered by the Espionage Act of 1917. I'll get to the ex-president issue in a minute. The official documents governing classification and, and declassification stem from executive orders, but even these executive orders aren't necessarily binding on the president. The president is not obliged to follow any procedures other than those that he himself has prescribed, Aftergood said, and he can change them. Indeed, the controlling executive order has been rewritten by multiple presidents, the current version of the order, by Obama in 2009. One was written by George W. Bush. One was written by Ronald Reagan. The national security experts at the blog Lawfare wrote in the wake of post-revelation that infamous comment by Richard Nixon that when the president does it, that means it's not illegal. It's actually true about some things. Classified information is one of them. The nature of the system is that the president gets to disclose what he wants. But they say there's two caveats. Some experts said Reich's formulation leaves out some notable aspects of the particular case involving Trump. The first caveat, while Trump has the power to declassify information, he doesn't appear to have done that in this case, at least at the time of the story broke. There's no question the president has broad authority. So that goes to the question again of whether 
of whether there needs to be some kind of writing. There simply does not. So that caveat doesn't even matter. And so this is brought out primarily by me on my Fox show and in this radio program. So now they've moved from that, right? But an ex-president. Well, when you're president of the United States and you're going to leave the White House because Biden's going to come in and take over the Oval Office, the very act of you taking the documents before you leave the White House is a presidential act. This is what I keep trying to explain. I can't seem to get it through to people or they don't want to believe it because they're former federal prosecutors and they want to be able to prosecute. Now this piece was written over five years ago. But it still applies. So the ex-president has classified information. Did he acquire that information as an ex-president? No. He acquired it as president. Okay. President and ex-president. Now we look at the Presidential Records Act which people are only looking at because of the piece that was in the Wall Street Journal, written by two very serious, highly practiced and competent constitutional lawyers. And I find this, again, not from a, a friend of Trump's, it's from March 2019, Sarah Worth. Presidential Records Act has been seldom litigated. But courts have decided that the law allows for only narrow judicial review of a president's record-keeping practices. In Armstrong versus Bush, the D.C. Circuit, the appellate court under the Supreme Court, found that review of a president's preservation guidelines was unavailable under the Administrative Procedures Act because the president is not an executive agency. He is the executive branch. In Armstrong versus Executive Office of the President, D.C. Circuit held the courts may review guidelines outlining what is and what is not a presidential record under the terms, but in terms of the president's handling of it, his practices, no. Based on those rulings, the D.C. District Court, in the case of Crew versus Trump, reasoned that mandamus relief, a court order, is available only under extraordinary circumstances, and the president's record-keeping duties under the Presidential Records Act are too discretionary to be enforced by court order. In short, the court found that judges may review the classification of existing records, but a court may not direct the president to affirmatively create and preserve particular records under the PRA, to affirmatively create or preserve particular records. All this talk about, well, Trump, you know, he used to destroy records at the White House and lawyers ran around taping them together. They didn't need to run around taping them together. So the way to think about this is the president is the executive branch. And I keep explaining a regulation or statute or subordinates creating checklists and so of no consequence. 
Now, you need to keep something in mind. The Presidential Records Act contemplates a process, a process over a period of years, a period of time. Period of years and a period of time. Donald Trump, as president, and his administration created more than 27 boxes of materials, right, Mr. Producer? Tens of millions of pages. Emails, other information that the archives has. Tens of millions of pages. I'm the first one to reveal this, and yet it's common sense. It's simple. Four years, he produced tens of millions of pages, not just Trump, but his administration. Where are they? They're with the National Archives. They're with the National Archives. And so these boxes are taken to Mar-a-Lago. We don't even know if he knows at the front end what's in these boxes, but it doesn't matter. Remember, he's the president at the time these boxes are packed. And if he decides to take them, quote-unquote declassify them, then they're declassified. Period. This is a process that is supposed to take years. These negotiations go on for years. Donald Trump in February of this year was out of office for approximately 12 months. One year. And they are negotiating. Maybe the negotiations aren't going as well as the Biden archives, the Biden council. The Biden Department of Justice, the Biden U.S. attorney would like. But the negotiations are going on. We know that for a fact right into June. We know there was a subpoena. We know there was at least one visit, I think two visits to Mar-a-Lago. No indication of anything untoward except that the National Archives wanted the documents. Now, what's interesting about the Presidential Records Act is that it actually protects the ex-president from the Freedom of Information Act. It protects, for a period of number of years, it protects the ex-president, in some cases, for a period up to 12 years. It even contemplates and provides... That even if the existing administration wants documents, certain documents, it has to go through procedures to gain access to those documents within the multi-year period in which the president, the ex-president himself, or any of his delegates, have sole access to them. So it's not about the Espionage Act. It's not about stealing government property when there's a negotiation process. It's not about obstruction. The government pulled the trigger on a secret search warrant as fast as it could and grabbed everything in sight. Why? Well, we're told by the legal analysts, the former federal prosecutors, this is about 
possession. Possession, it's clear. And I see it all over the site, lawfare and so forth. That the government, the second the president leaves office, the government gets the documents. The second the president leaves office, the government gets the documents. Is it a crime, by the way, if it doesn't get the documents within a second? Keep that question. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Folks, it's no secret that Americans are more divided than ever, and it's not just over what policies will improve our great country. No, it's over whether America is great at all, whether America deserves our love. That's why Imprimus, Hillsdale's Digest of Liberty, is so important. Imprimus looks at the issues of the day from a constitutional perspective, reminding citizens always of our great heritage of liberty. For 50 years, Imprimus has featured speeches given at Hillsdale events by the smartest conservative thinkers and writers. These days, Hillsdale publishes people like Victor Davis Hanson, Molly Hemingway, and Chris Rufo. Over 6.2 million American households and businesses receive Imprimus absolutely free, and I urge you to sign up for it today at absolutely no charge. I always look forward to receiving my copy of Imprimus. My friends at Hillsdale and I want you to have a free subscription as well. To get your free subscription, go to levinforhillsdale.com right now, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. One other thing on this Espionage Act of 1917. It's never been used to prosecute a sitting president, of course, but it's never been used to prosecute a former president. Never. And former presidents were free to take home documents, including classified documents, prior to 1978. Actually, prior to 1974. So the vast majority of presidents, almost all of them in our history, would take home documents and keep them. There was no distinction between classified and unclassified. None. So my point to you is, they didn't pass this law for the purpose of trying to figure out how to criminalize, since 1974, an act of a president taking classified documents. The law was passed in 1917, the Espionage Act. Has no application to a president or a former president. But more when I return. Folks, it's no secret that Americans are more divided than ever, and it's not just over what policies will improve our great country. No, it's over whether America is great at all, whether America deserves our love. That's why Imprimus, Hillsdale's Digest of Liberty, is so important. Imprimus looks at the issues of the day from a constitutional perspective, reminding citizens always of our great heritage of liberty. For 50 years, Imprimus has featured speeches given at Hillsdale events by the smartest conservative thinkers and writers. These days, Hillsdale publishes people like Victor Davis Hanson, Molly Hemingway, and Chris Rufo. Over 6.2 million American households and businesses receive Imprimus absolutely free, and I urge you to sign up for it today at 
absolutely no charge. I always look forward to receiving my copy of Imprimus. My friends at Hillsdale and I want you to have a free subscription as well. To get your free subscription, go to levinforhillsdale.com right now. L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. Nobody says it better than Mark Levin. I'll go with what Mark Levin said, because nobody could say it better. Call in now at 877-381-3811. Let me uh, summarize it this way. I heard much of what my buddy Andy McCarthy said on Brett Bear's show on Fox during the break. And I have some disagreements with them. First of all, there's a moving ball here, the Espionage Act. I just told you the D.C. Circuit Court, among others, have made clear. Let me just. Uh, the president can classify or declassify at will. And he need not follow any protocol. Article 2, Section 1, first sentence. He is the executive branch. He's also the sole commander in chief. He's even able to destroy those records or share them with anyone, the latter of which then presumes declassification. That's as president. Okay? It's extremely broad as a president must have the ability to function without the criminalization of his duties. Second, Trump was out of office for a mere 12 months when the issues arose about these particular boxes. It may have even been earlier. Multi-millions of pages of Trump administration documents are with the archives. So these documents, likely in and around his office, etc., went to Mar-a-Lago. Now, as president, when he made the decision to remove them to Mar-a-Lago, if in fact he did and not the GSA, that would remove any application of the Espionage Act, period. I understand former prosecutors don't look at it this way, but they're wrong. The law was never intended to apply to a sitting or former president. Now remember, the Espionage Act is much, much broader than just the handling of classified documents. It deals with information which, of course, the former president retains in his head. Now his subordinates have no constitutional protection. Third, the Presidential Records Act has no sanctions in it, let alone criminal sanctions. Negotiating over documents, what is or is not personal or whatever, certainly does not show an intent to commit any crime. So, when people talk about possession, that they were supposed to go to the archives and they're at Mar-a-Lago, the second after the president leaves office, okay, so what? It isn't grounds to get a search warrant. Fourth, the warrant was extremely broad. In my view, it violates the Fourth Amendment against general warrants. Why was it so broad? FBI had been there twice before. They had video. FBI had free run of the place in a previous subpoena. Well, if it is, as I surmise, and others have now, a pretext to look for more documents related to January 6th, then this whole thing is a ruse. Then this whole thing is a ruse. But you have to ask yourself, given everything I've just told you, 
Why would the Attorney General of the United States, why would the U.S. Attorney in Washington, D.C. Graves, why would the Biden administration take what is really a relatively innocuous matter that's being negotiated, being discussed, it's not as if anything's being, you know, they suddenly found out that there were documents at Mar-a-Lago. Why all the drama? Why all the activity? Why all the urgency? So I have surmised maybe somebody is claiming that somebody destroyed a document or something. Okay, but then why would the Attorney General wait weeks to decide to issue or to seek the issuance of a search warrant? Why? And why when they get that approval from a master, everybody keeps calling this guy a judge, from a master, on a Friday, would they wait until a Monday? But they're all taking a break over the weekend? Why? And notice the focus on the leaks coming out of the very people who are demanding that the affidavit be secreted. Is on the classification of documents. And notice how swiftly it has now changed to the retention of documents. The retention of documents. So they'll now say the Espionage Act can still be violated. No, it can't. Well, he stole the documents. Let's say, ladies and gentlemen, you steal jewelry from a jewelry store. Do you start negotiating with the owner of the jewelry store over the jewelry, Mr. Producer? He didn't steal anything. He didn't steal anything. So the question remains. Was this about January 6th and broader issues? And this other stuff is being leaked in order to change the subject? Now, that's not to say that they wouldn't necessarily bring an indictment based on some of this, because they know they're going to have a friendly, friendly jury as they do a friendly grand jury. They know they're going to have a friendly judge as they do a friendly master. But I just want you, most of you non-lawyers, most of you looking at this and shaking your head to understand, this is perverse what's taking place here over these documents. It's really quite outrageous. I'm going to read something else to you from Politico. Back several years ago, 2014. Eight to be accurate. President Barack Obama signs presidential records reform. Well, what's this? President Obama signed a bill that has the potential to curtail prolonged delays in the release of historical White House records. White House Press Secretary Josh Earnest, who was anything but, announced that the Presidential and Federal Records Act amendments of 2014 was among a set of bills Obama approved just prior to the Thanksgiving holiday. The legislation will end the practice of White House lawyers repeatedly extending the review of records of prior presidents that the National Archives has designated for release. 
Under the new law, the current president and affected former president have 60 business days to review records. The archives declares an intention to make public under the FOIA and so forth. That period can be extended 30 business days, but only once. Under an executive order issued by Obama in 2009 and a previous order by President George W. Bush, there was effectively no time limit on such reviews. So what did he do? Why? What was going on here? <coughs> Obama, on behalf of the former President Clinton kept extending the release of thousands of pages of records from President Clinton's White House that were stored in, I guess, the Clinton Library at that time. 30 days, 30 days, 30 days, 30 days, because they didn't want the public to see them. They didn't want the public to see them. Isn't that a violation? At least of the purpose of the act? They played it. Over and over and over again. And so, Congress stepped in and said, no, you can only do that once. Because they were trying to cover up for Clinton. You don't remember that, do you? Because it was non-consequential. It was, it was, and so here we have this. They think they found something. Or at least they're using it as a pretext. Either way. I don't know. I can't be certain. Either way. A process that plays out over time, suddenly there are criminal issues. The Espionage Act. Now, everything I've told you is known by the Department of Justice. Everything I've told you is known by the U.S. Attorney's Office, apparently not by legal analysts. But everything else, they know this. Which is why I surmised on day one, on night one, that this has to be bigger than the Espionage Act, than the Presidential Records Act, and all the rest of it. That they're on a fishing hunt, a fishing expedition, a witch hunt. Or maybe it's this. Maybe they just want to trap them on this. They went in, subpoena. They knew there were classified records. They sat down with the U.S. Attorney and others. And they hatched a plot to try and get Trump on possession, on retaining classified information, and they'll make Trump fight over whether or not it was declassified the second he he decided to take the documents. And besides, they'll say their fallback position is theft. Theft in broad daylight. Theft with video cameras available. Theft in front of the Secret Service. Theft, even though the FBI had been there and saw everything. Theft. Or maybe he was destroying documents. Destroying documents and they take at least six weeks, maybe eight, to get their search warrant. And the Attorney General, Meritless Garland, is sitting there rubbing his head for two to three weeks after they're ready to roll. It's just hard to digest all this. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin.
Folks, it's no secret that Americans are more divided than ever, and it's not just over what policies will improve our great country. No, it's over whether America is great at all, whether America deserves our love. That's why Imprimus, Hillsdale's Digest of Liberty, is so important. Imprimus looks at the issues of the day from a constitutional perspective, reminding citizens always of our great heritage of liberty. For 50 years, Imprimus has featured speeches given at Hillsdale events by the smartest conservative thinkers and writers. These days, Hillsdale publishes people like Victor Davis Hanson, Molly Hemingway, and Chris Rufo. Over 6.2 million American households and businesses receive Imprimus absolutely free, and I urge you to sign up for it today at absolutely no charge. I always look forward to receiving my copy of Imprimus. My friends at Hillsdale and I want you to have a free subscription as well. To get your free subscription, go to levinforhillsdale.com right now, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. It's very difficult to argue that possession now, now it's possession, not the espionage is the defining criminal issue for a lot of reasons, including the fact that they could have gotten a subpoena and order enforcing it and collected all the records a year or more ago, or maybe 20 months ago. There have been negotiations in the interim. If documents were being destroyed, etc., and there's an eyewitness, then you presumably arrest the culprit. Plus, Garland waited at least two weeks to give the go on the warrant. So it seems hard to believe things were disappearing or whatever. Why would you wait? that long I think that's a fair question don't you Mr. Producer and so these are just things you know we're forced to try and put our minds together and figure things out in this regard but again this is a process it had gone on for less than a year before the archives brought in the Department of Justice Obviously, tens of millions of pages of documents have already been turned over to the archives. It appears we're talking about a few dozen boxes, of which 700 pages leaked to the New York Times, the information, are said to be classified. I don't even know what that means. There's no penalty under the Presidential Records Act. It's actually a relatively new act in its current form, to be perfectly honest. It was amended in 2014, so it applied to Obama and Trump. So there are some ambiguities, some questions. So classification to me is a, is a pretext. You got negotiation, so possession is a pretext. I mean, what's Trump going to do with the papers? Take them to New Jersey, and then to Florida, and then Florida, then New Jersey. I mean, seriously. Why did this go to a five-alarm fire? And why did it do it so fast? And as I said, if they had a witness that somebody was doing something illegal, you don't need a broad search warrant for that. You get an arrest warrant, right, Mr. Producer? You knock on the door, say, we have information that Ernie Robotsky was stealing stuff. 
or destroying stuff. You're under arrest. And if there was an urgency of the kind that they're talking about in the media or speculation by the former federal prosecutors, doesn't lack like, look like an urgency once they decided to go with, an, with a search warrant, which seemed out of place. Uh, they took a few weeks to think about it. And so this master has decided he's going to protect. We've already learned the identities of witnesses. And uncharged parties. And the direction and the scope, and the methods of the investigation. I don't know how much we'll be left with, but even if he, if he allows 17 syllables to be put out, people will be telling you what that means. The fact is, no, none of us really know what it means. You notice how I'm not, I'm not saying with any kind of definitive conclusion exactly what's going on here. I'm giving you my surmise based on my own experience. Several weeks ago, people were saying, why don't they release this stuff? I said, well, they could be asserting that there's classified information. I suspect that's one of the assertions. That's my, my surmise. And I think that's correct as well. When we come back, and we'll, do this, we'll discuss this more tomorrow when, in fact, the so-called redacted affidavit is released, to the extent it's released. We'll dig in even more. But when we come back, I want to talk to something that I think is very important. We have these school districts now that are cutting parents out of the process of raising their children. They don't want parents to know if they're kids, and they're being encouraged, these little kids, to identify as an opposite sex. If Sally wants to be called Frankie, if Frankie wants to be called them. And these kids are relatively young. And they go home to their parents, which is an utterly and completely different environment. And their parents are kept in the dark, and intentionally so, by places like Fairfax County School District in Fairfax County, Virginia. Now, by the way, I want to make it abundantly clear, it's only Democrats that support this, not Republicans. It's only Democrat school boards that promote this, not Republicans. It's only the Democrat unions that promote this, not Republicans. I'll be right back. This segment of the podcast is exclusively sponsored by Pure Talk. Pure Talk offers great coverage and can save your family money on your wireless bill every single month. Go to puretalk.com to find the plan that's right for you. Thank you again for listening, and thank you so much for this sponsorship, Pure Talk. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. 
Now, before I get to the broader point I wanted to discuss about what's going on in these schools and why, there is breaking information on Twitter. Mark Zuckerberg tells Joe Rogan that Facebook, they use their algorithm to censor the Hunter Biden laptop story for seven days based on a general request from the FBI to restrict election misinformation. This is what he said. It was just sent to me, Mr. Producer. I'm going to send it to you if you can download it and get it ready for me. The audio, that is. And so this is what I mean about the FBI. And they just prosecuted two individuals who pled guilty who found Biden's daughter's diary. Another one with a sex problem and a drug problem. I mean, think about this with Joe Biden. Something's not right. And they apparently tried to sell it. But they're going to jail for trying to sell stolen or otherwise some other kind of property interstate. I mean, you talk about stretching it. Just like the Records Production Act and the Espionage Act, which was not applied against Hillary Clinton. Or, for that matter, Jim Comey. So Mark Zuckerberg tells Joe Rogan that Facebook algorithmically censored the Hunter Biden laptop story for seven days based on a general request from the FBI to restrict election misinformation. So the FBI, we now have whistleblowers saying the FBI sat on the laptop. The FBI sat on the laptop. The FBI was involved in trying to affect the outcome of this election in 2020. Just as they tried to affect the outcome of the 2016 election. And are trying to affect the outcome of the upcoming election. I just want to remind Vice President Pence of this, among others. Incredible. Incredible. Fairfax teachers trained to transition children's genders without parental approval. Jeremiah Puff, education reporter. Now, this county, Fairfax County, is a huge county in Virginia. It's the biggest county in Virginia, most populated. It is filled with a majority of bureaucrats. Not all, of course. There's always patriots here and there, but you understand. And um, used to be Republican 20 years ago. Now it's Democrat, like so many counties. And this is the Democrats. The Democrat school board and the Democrat union. I just want parents to keep this in mind. Fairfax County Public Schools in Northern Virginia 
are requiring all teachers to complete a training program that says parental permission is not required for students who seek to be addressed by different names or pronouns. According to materials obtained by the Washington Examiner, the district assigned the training program, quote, supporting gender expansive and transgender youth, unquote, on July 22 for teachers in all grades, including preschool. Two sources within Fairfax County Public Schools confirmed that the training was required for all teachers. The training contained, this is like the worst of communism. The indoctrination and the brainwashing, it's just so sickening. The training contained multiple slides about promoting equity in schools, as well as how to respond to students who express a desire to be addressed by a new name or by pronouns that do not correspond with their biological sex. The training specifically states that parental permission is not required if a student asks to be called, quote, by his chosen name in class, unquote, requests to use the locker room that corresponds with her identified gender, unquote, or asks to use a private bathroom. In other words, if you have a little boy in second grade and he identifies as Sally or doesn't and wants to use the girl's bathroom, that's okay. So it's not only a problem for the parent of the boy, it's a problem for all the parents who don't have any idea this is going on. I mean, they had a rape in the county just north of Fairfax County, Loudoun County, in a bathroom by a guy who said he was a girl and wore a skirt and raped a girl. And they covered it up. Then they sent him to another school where he molested another girl. And they covered it up. Another slide details how a student who wishes to identify with another name and gender can choose from one of three options for changing their name, none of which require parental parental permission. The first option is a name change in class where teachers required to address the student by their chosen name. The student has the opinion to use a chosen name in some classes and not others. In other words, a name he or she chooses. The second option allows students to change their name on school online platforms. Teachers are required to, quote, ensure that class lists use chosen name. So not their birth name, their chosen name. The third option allows, by the way, are we allowed, are our kids allowed to give the teachers a chosen name, Mr. Producer? Because I have a few I think they could use. The third option allows students to change their name on all records. If a student chooses this option, their legal name will be stored in the protected information uh, in the district's database. Choosing this option does not require a legal name change or parental permission and ensures that a student will receive diplomas and transcripts with both the legal and the chosen name. So all these decisions are made by the educational bureaucracy. All these decisions are made by the teachers' unions. All these teachers are being brainwashed and indoctrinated if they want to keep their jobs. In your life, did you ever think this would happen? And it goes on in more gory detail. So what's going on here? Well, over 1.3 million of you have a copy of American Marxism in one form or another. I'm not going to refer to it. 
but you know what's going on. And I want to underscore this for everybody else. Again, people say, what do you do for a hobby? This is what I do. So I did more research today. And I dug and dug and I, you know, I discard a lot of good stuff because I can't, you know, I only have three hours. I can't use it all. And then I found this. Marx, Engels, and the Abolition of the Family, printed in Great Britain, 1994. The History of European Ideas, Volume 18, Number 5. It's just a different way of saying what I say in my book, but it's very important. Richard Weikert, it is a peculiar fact, stated Engels a few months after Marx died, that with every great revolutionary movement, the question of free love comes to foreground. By the mid and late 19th century, it was clear to advocates and opponents alike that many socialists shared a propensity to reject the institution of the family in favor of quote-unquote free love, if not in practice, at least as an ideal. Now, you're going to hear the word socialist and Marxist. Actually, the socialists came before the Marxists, just so you understand. The Prussian and German Reich governments tried to muzzle the socialist threat to the family by drafting legislation outlawing, among other things, assaults on the family. But the anti-socialist law that Bismarck managed to pass in 1878 contained no mention of the family. The Utopian Socialists, remember the book Ameritopia? The Utopian Socialists, Charles Fuhrer and Robert Owen, had preceded Marx and Engels in the rejection of traditional family relationships, and many 19th century leftists followed their cue. The most famous was a German socialist, uh, the Germans, August Bebel, though he was a staunch Marxist, wrote his immensely popular book, I can't read German, under the influence of Feuer's ideas. However, not all socialists in the 19th century were anti-family. The anarchist, Mikhail Bakunin, while jettisoning most of the traditional family ties, nevertheless thought that a voluntary natural family unit consisting of a man, a woman, and their children would emerge to replace the extant legal family. Let me cut to the chase, because this is about 25 pages. It's very fascinating to somebody like me. Marx and Engels, they didn't invent the idea, but they certainly embraced it and expanded it and promoted it. Believe that the family, like the society, the status quo society, was a throwback to feudalism. That it was not natural. And that just as Marxism needs to destroy the existing society. Just as Marxism needs to begin society anew. You must destroy history. You must destroy all connections to history. You must destroy the patriotism for the state that is. You see that happening in America. What do you think CRT is all about? The world begins today. That the great... Obstacles are those who resist, those who embrace religion, and the nuclear family. You must destroy them all. You must destroy them all.
because these are the great the great issues that interfere with utopia, Marxist utopia. And so Marx and Engels, they didn't instigate this anti-family trend, but they contributed to it mightily. Mightily. And that is exactly what's going on. Says the interpretations of Marx's and Engels' position on the family, while often raising important points, tend to obscure somewhat the radicalism of their views. Marx and Engels' critique of the family consisted of three main elements a depiction of the hypocrisy and inhumanity of the contemporary bourgeois family, the historicization of the family, that is, a historical account of the origins and development of the family in the past and a vision of the future family in the communist society. Marx once alluded to a higher form of the family in communist society. He and Engels usually wrote about the destruction, dissolution, abolition of the family. The relationships they envisioned for communist society would have little or no resemblance to the family as it exists They believed in the abolition of the family. And the family unit was to be infinitely elastic. Not just reformulated. So this is where it comes from. Marx's first significant exposure to the concept of the abolition of the family probably came while he was in Paris in 1843. He first imbibed communist ideas, and, or what would become communist ideas, and held long discussions with numerous socialists, other radicals. So these ideas played in his head. Fourier, who I mentioned earlier, advocated the replacement of the monogamous marriage with a system allowing much greater latitude for sexual passions, since he believed that monogamy was an institution contrary to human nature was thus an impediment to human happiness. He also proposed that children be raised communally. Communally! So society would be one big harmonious family rather than fractured into competitive, squabbling, small family units. This forced Marx to grapple with the idea of the family and provided him with ammunition which he used to criticize the family unit, its present institution, and the German ideology, which he wrote 1845. And Engels, who lived longer than Marx, in many ways was smarter than Marx, but Marx was very powerful. His understanding of family relationships was strongly influenced by these men. In fact, Engels' most influential work, he lavished praise on both socialists for their views on the family. Even more masterfully wrote his his critique, that is four years, of the bourgeois form of sexual relationships and the position of the women in bourgeois society. While working on the origin of the family in 1884, he wrote to a friend that Foyer had brilliantly anticipated many of these matters. 
What I'm trying to get across here is this issue of abolishing the family was a very, very core, expansive belief among the radicals, among the Marxists, that you had to destroy the family unit. You had to destroy the family unit. You had to destroy the whole notion of binary sex. It's free love, free sex. In order to establish a Marxist society. More when I return. Mark Lovin. Right now, every business is trying to nickel and dime you. How much can they squeeze you to offset their increasing costs? It's a mess. That's why I love Pure Talk, my wireless company, and I want it to be your wireless company. Pure Talk drew the line in the sand and said, stop screwing over the American public. So when you sign up with Pure Talk this month, you're going to get their best ever offer, one month free, one month free. You can lock in talk, text, and data on America's most reliable 5G network, for just 30 bucks a month. Plus, get one month free when you make the switch today. Just go to puretalk.com and enter code Levin Podcast for this special offer. That's L E V I N Podcast. Need another reason? When you choose Pure Talk, you're choosing to support American jobs. You're choosing to support a company whose CEO is a U.S. veteran. And with Pure Talk's no-risk money-back guarantee, you won't regret it. Go to puretalk.com, select a plan, and enter promo code Levin Podcast. That's L-E-V-I-N Podcast, and get one month free. Marx and Engels beat the hell out of the family structure over and over and over again and incorporated it into their communist ideology. Um, in his material from Capital, Marx and Engels rejected the appeal to an absolute norm for families by addressing three aspects uh, of the family, uh, of the historicity of the family, they write. First, they provided a the theory of the origin of the family. Then they asserted that the family had developed through various forms during the preceding historical stages, making the bourgeoisie model merely its latest transitory manifestation. And finally, they insisted that the transformations of the family were primarily precipitated by economic forces. And this is what's happening to your children, the family unit, parents. They're not considered legitimate. It's considered transitory. The National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers, in my view, are largely Marxist, whether they say it or not. Their agenda is largely Marxist. Extraordinarily radical. And now it's being applied to your children in your classroom. That's why you're cut out of the system. Right now, every business is trying to nickel and dime you. How much can they squeeze you to offset their increasing costs? It's a mess. That's why I love Pure Talk, my wireless company, and I want it to be your wireless company. Pure Talk drew the line in the sand and said, stop screwing over the American public. So when you sign up with Pure Talk this month, you're going to get their best ever offer one month free, one month free. You can lock in talk, text, and data on America's most reliable 5G network for just 30 bucks a month. Plus, get one month free when you make the switch today. Just go to puretalk.com and enter code Levin Podcast for this special offer. That's L E V I N Podcast. Need another reason? 
When you choose Pure Talk, you're choosing to support American jobs. You're choosing to support a company whose CEO is a U.S. veteran. And with Pure Talk's no-risk money-back guarantee, you won't regret it. Go to puretalk.com, select a plan, and enter promo code Levin Podcast. That's L-E-V-I-N Podcast, and get one month free. The Mark Levin Show, live and national at 877-381-3811. By the way, America's governor, Governor Ron DeSantis, will be on the program in hour three. The great Governor Ron DeSantis, good friend of mine, good friend of the program. Marx and Engels once argued that the sexual community, sort of free sex, uh, was a natural state inherited from the animal kingdom. Later claimed that the sexual community was a prerequisite for the development of larger social groups, and this facilitated the evolution of humans from animals. Marx and Engels shifted to a position in which not the family but the absence of the family was the original and natural state of humanity. Even earlier, when they assumed that the family was a natural institution of society, they were clear that it was not a fixed entity. Marx pronounced as silly any absolutism of the family since it had developed through historical stages. He wrote, it's not possible to speak of the family. Now you know where, <coughs> excuse me, now you know where all this is coming from. Parents don't have rights. There are not two sexes. There are 56 flavors. Now you know what's going on with the transgender movement. I'm not talking about with every person who's transgender, the transgender movement. Now you know that this is a war, like critical race theory, in the classroom. Like economic socialism, in the classroom, on television. This is another American Marxist movement that finds a home in the Democrat Party. And it's destroying the country. That's what's going on in Fairfax County schools. That's what's going on in Loudoun County schools. That's what's going on in schools across America. In Plunder and Deceit, I wrote an entire chapter, Chapter 5, on education. You know, it's almost spooky when I go back to some of my books that are 10 years old, 12 years old, 8 years old, and how in front of the curve you and I have been here. I said, American post-secondary education has become a huge industry. Now we're talking about student loans, colleges and universities. I wrote this in 2015. Colleges and universities employ about 850,000 people, or about 1.5% of the total workforce in 1960. According to a study in 2009, they employed 4 million people. So they went from 850,000 to 4 million, and that is old. That is 13 years old. That's... 3% of the nation's population, and I, uh, and I suspect it's more than that now. 
Of the 4 million people then, 1.7 million were faculty, professors, and instructors. The rest were administrators and support personnel. So most of them weren't teaching. Employees at these institutions are also well compensated. As of March 2010, again, 12 years ago, the average per hour cost for employee compensation for college and university workers, this is 12 years ago, $44.82 hourly. Just over 31.12 cents of that sum covered wages and salaries. The remaining $13.70 per hour went toward benefits. Another significant factor for the soaring cost of college tuition is the irresponsible and extravagant spending on major construction projects in 2012, 10 years ago. The New York Times reported that a decade-long spending bid to build academic buildings, dormitories, and recreational facilities, some of them inordinately lavish to attract students, has left colleges and universities saddled with large amounts of debt. Oftentimes, students are stuck picking up the bill. Overall, debt levels more than doubled from 2000 to 2011, and more than 500 institutions rated by Moody's, according to inflation-adjusted data. In the same time, the amount of cash, pledge gifts, and investments that colleges maintain declined more than 40% relative to the amount that they owe. The debate about indebtedness has focused on students and graduates who've borrowed tens of thousands of dollars and are struggling to keep up with their payments, they write. Nearly one in every six borrows with a student loan is in default. But some colleges and universities have also borrowed heavily, spending money on vast expansions and amenities aimed at luring better students, student unions with more theaters and wine bars, workout facilities with climbing walls and lazy rivers, and dormitories with single rooms and private baths. Spending on instruction has grown at a much slower pace. Students end up covering some, if not most, of the debt payments in the form of higher tuition, room and board, special assessments. While in other instances, the state taxpayer picks up the debt. Debt is ballooned to colleges across the board, public and private, elite and obscure. While Harvard is the wealthiest university in the country, the most of any private college. The data compiled by Moody shows as of 2011, again, 11 years ago, colleges and universities have racked up a total debt bill of $205 billion. And it's more now. In fact, outstanding debt, <clears throat> 224 public universities rated by Moody's, grew to $122 billion in 2011, <clears throat> excuse me, from $53 billion in inflation adjusted in 2000. And it goes on. Now, the, the statist answer to the unmitigated financial disaster is, in part, the effective nationalization of student loan debt. Again, I wrote this in 2015, seven years ago. Language added to the massive Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act of 2010, Obamacare, made the Federal Department of Education the student's loan officer. You didn't even know. They snuck it in the bill. It will now make nearly 100% of future student loans, <clears throat> which will be federally guaranteed by the taxpayer, 100%. This does nothing to reduce the cost of post-secondary education, I wrote, nor is the federal government in a position to assume even more debt. 
Buried deep in its 2016 budget proposal, the Obama administration revealed that its student loan program had a $21.8 billion shortfall last year. The main cause <clears throat> was Obama's recent efforts to provide relief for borrowing, that is, student debt. Reforms that have already begun to reduce loan payments to the government. In fact, direct government loans alone increased 44% over the last two years. So you have now these student loans controlled by the government that are increasing on a massive scale. Several reports by Barclays Capital have warned that Obama's generosity to borrowers could leave the student loan program as much of a quarter of a trillion dollars in the hole over the next decade. And so I point out, rather than addressing the root causes of reckless education, so-called spending and borrowing, these efforts have ensured that the system will bloat further and eventually rupture. That is seven years ago. Chapter five. Now, on top of that, we have this massive loan forgiveness now. Government takes over the private loan business, which means you and I, you and I are the are the uh, are the creditors, and they just slash interest rates, they freeze payments, and now, and now they're giving money out. That's how it works. It's unbelievable. Mr. Producer, we mentioned earlier in the show that Joe Ragan had Mark Zuckerberg on his program, and Zuckerberg said something that is really stunning. This is why this is why you've come to despise the FBI, as a matter of fact, an organization I used to really honor. Listen to this from today. Go. How do you guys handle things when they're a, a big news item that's controversial? Like there was a lot of attention on Twitter during the election because of the Hunter Biden laptop story, the New York Post. Yeah, we Post. had that too. Yeah, so you guys censored that as well? So we took a different path than Twitter. Um, I mean, basically the background here is the FBI, I think, basically came to us, uh, some, some folks on our team, and was like, hey... Um, just so you know, like you should be on high alert. There was the, we we thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump of of um, uh, that's similar to that. So just be vigilant. So our protocol is different from Twitter's. What Twitter did is they said you can't share this at all. Um, we didn't do that. What, what we do is we have. Um, if something is reported to us as potentially um, misinformation, important misinformation, we, we also have this third-party fact-checking program because we don't want to be deciding what's true and false. And for the, I think it was five or seven days when it was basically being, um, being determined whether it was false, um, the distribution on Facebook was decreased, but people were still allowed to share it. So you could still share it. You could still consume it. So when um, you say the distribution has decreased, in, it, it got shared. It, how does that work? It basically the ranking in newsfeed was a little bit less. So fewer people saw it than would have otherwise. So it definitely by what percentage? I, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's 
it's it's meaningful. But I mean, but basically, a um, a lot of people were still able to share it. We got a lot of complaints that that was the case. Um, you know, obviously, this is a hyper political issue. So depending on what side of the political spectrum, you either think we didn't censor it enough or censored it way too much. But right. but we weren't sort of as black and white about it as as Twitter. We just kind of thought, hey, look, if if the FBI, which you know, I still view as a legitimate institution in this country, it's a very professional law enforcement. They come to us and tell us that we need to be on guard about something that I want to take that seriously. Did they specifically say you need to be on guard about that story? I, I No, I, I don't remember if it was that specifically, but it was it basically fit the pattern. In other words, he got the message. So they censored the story for a week. Right, Mr. Producer? They got the message. The FBI came to them and told them. You see, you're not conspiracy nuts. You're not wrong to be skeptical and worse. These things are happening. These things are happening. And these things that are happening are extremely dangerous. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Right now, every business is trying to nickel and dime you. How much can they squeeze you to offset their increasing costs? It's a mess. That's why I love Pure Talk, my wireless company, and I want it to be your wireless company. Pure Talk drew the line in the sand and said, stop screwing over the American public. So when you sign up with Pure Talk this month, you're going to get their best ever offer, one month free, one month free. You can lock in talk, text, and data on America's most reliable 5G network for just 30 bucks a month. Plus, get one month free when you make the switch today. Just go to puretalk.com and enter code Levin Podcast for this special offer. That's L-E-V-I-N Podcast. Need another reason? When you choose Pure Talk, you're choosing to support American jobs. You're choosing to support a company whose CEO is a U.S. veteran. And with Pure Talk's no-risk money-back guarantee, you won't regret it. Go to puretalk.com, select a plan, and enter promo code Levin Podcast. That's L-E-V-I-N Podcast, and get one month free. Well, ladies and gentlemen... You're now a semi-fascist. Joe Biden says extreme MAGA philosophy is like semi-fascism. He said it at a DNC event. The Hill writes, President Biden today likened the MAGA wing of the GOP to fascism, leaning into his midterm campaign strategy to paint Republicans as extreme. What we're seeing now is either the beginning or the death knell of an extreme MAGA philosophy. It's not just Trump. It's the entire philosophy that underpins the, I'm going to say something. It's like semi-fascism. It's a fundraising event hosted by the DNC in Bethesda, Maryland. They never learn. These bastards never learn. This guy, with executive orders, steals $300 billion from you, the people. Defies immigration laws on the border. Destroys women's sports. Destroys our fossil fuel industry, driving up the price of fuel. 
And I could go on and on and on. He's arming the Islamo-Nazi regime in Iran effectively with nuclear weapons. He provoked our enemies to attack our allies. And he calls you semi-fascist because you disagree with his agenda. Over 70 million Americans are semi-fascist. I've never heard a president talk this way, seriously. You know, they talk about Trump and so forth. I've never heard a president talk this way. This guy is a lowlife. He's always been a stupid, maniacal, narcissistic liar. Whether it's about his education and his scholarships and his athletics, being a tough guy in the hood, being this fantastic football player, he is disgusting. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to ask you a question. Did you know withdrawing your cash from the bank can be very risky? That's right. Banks are now required to spy on us for the government. And they report any behavior they think is suspicious. It's true. And I was shocked when I read this secret war on cash from Swiss America. The new war against cash is really a war against the Constitution, against all freedom-loving Americans. So you need to read the war on cash. Get your free copy by calling 800-630-1492, 800-630-1492, or visit SwissAmerica.com. Now, this war on cash is growing daily and also includes all forms of digital money. Please get and read The Secret War on Cash free to my listeners by calling now, 800-630-1492, 800-630-1492. Or visit SwissAmerica.com. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. America's governor, Governor DeSantis, will be here in a few minutes. We have a fantastic Life, Liberty, and Levin for you on Sunday. Of course, my opening statement. Already working on it. And we're going to have Newt Gingrich and Tom Cotton. Really, two of the best. And as you know, the way I do an interview is I ask a question and I get out of the way. And uh, it gives people an opportunity to really express what they're thinking, which I think is why you find it so compelling. But anyway, I have my own opening statement, as you know. This Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, all times in between and around. If you can't watch it live at 8 p.m. this Sunday, I would encourage you to go ahead and record it on DVR. You can go ahead and and put that in place now, the recording. That way you won't forget. And I think you should do it every week just in case. But what do I know? California continues to destroy itself. And it's really the Democrat Party. It's like the United States of the Democrat Party. Well, it is California, the Democrat Party. The highest income tax rates in the country. Their health care system is a disaster now because of the the number of illegal aliens 
in the state. You got 41% migrants and illegal migrants in California. Businesses fleeing, and this moron, what is Pencil next name? Newsom. And his girly figure. Here, he's handsome. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? He's got more oil in his hair than, uh, anyway, so he's going to spend $100,000 in Florida trying to defeat Ron DeSantis. I have a better idea, dummy. Why don't you come and campaign in Florida? And let's see how your candidates do. Florida is the freest place in the world. It's not just the freest state. It's the freest place in the world. And California is turning into Venezuela. And of course, that's the problem. California, New York, New Jersey, Illinois. The Democrats look at this and say, we want to impose this on the entire country. On the entire country. Washington Compost, California moves toward banning new cars running only on gas by 2035. Now, I don't know about you folks, but my car only runs on gas. Call me quaint. Call my car ancient, even though it's only a year old. California is set to move closer to banning the sale of new cars running only on gasoline by 2035. A major step in the car-loving state's fight against climate change. Look where we've come 40 years from Reagan to Newsom. Gruesome Newsom. And you know what's funny? It's not even Newsom. They have this environmental climate committee that runs all things. And they put these, these pathetic professors on these committees and so forth. And they, they issue their fiats. And then they're voted on and confirmed by a super-duper majority of Democrats running the assembly there. The expected embrace of the policy by the state's Air Resources Board, that's what it is, during a meeting scheduled today, comes after Newsom set a target of 2020 for cleaning up California's auto fleet. No liberty whatsoever. No freedom. I don't know what the California Constitution says, but are you kidding me? They could just ban cars? Just ban them. Now, of course, this raises a host of issues, and they don't care. Because you're talking about people who are ideologues. These are Marxists. Fundamentally, that's what they are, Marxists. They look at the greater good, they determine what the greater good is, and they impose their individual will on the greater society. That's all they do. They produce nothing except despair and poverty. They don't have enough electricity in California right now. As I speak. Wasn't that long ago when California was the state. Economic power. You want to make something of yourself? Go to California. Remember all that? And this is what happens when the Democrats control things. Look what's happening to the country. All these blue states... And we're told there's 12 other states that want to do the same thing. And at least two automobile manufacturers who are all in, all in, all in support. Big government, big corporation, 
big union, all working together. Oh, and of course, big environment, all working together against you. You have no say. Now, if these blue states do that, that means one one third to 40% of all cars manufactured in this country have to be electric. The electrical grid is not prepared. We've talked about cobalt. We've talked a little about lithium and these other rare earth minerals. We don't have them. I've talked over and over again about cobalt. At 70% of the world's cobalt is in a corrupt, vile country. Well, not the country, the government of Congo. Controlled 100%. The cobalt in Congo, 70% in the world, is controlled 100% by communist China. I thought we wanted to be independent from them when it comes to manufacturing and rare minerals and all. Apparently not. These damn Democrat governors who destroyed their economies during the virus, who set back little kids in their education during the virus, who've embraced critical race theory and transgenderism and all the rest of the Marxist forces that find a home in the Democrat Party, who cut out parents, who attack gun owners, who embrace and celebrate rioters, them. Banning, banning gas-using automobiles? The proposed regulation would set strict deadlines for meeting that goal, forcing automakers to step up production of cleaner vehicles considerably. Why are they cleaner? Do not the people at the Washington Compost, Dino Gardini and Evan Halper, Do they not know how electricity is produced? They think it comes from solar panels? They think it comes from burping? What do they think it comes from? Coal, natural gas, nuclear. There's one nuclear power plant left in California. One! They were going to shut it down, but they just said, you know what, we better not. Completely dysfunctional state. Under Marxist ideologues, American Marxists, run the damn state. And that piece of crap, Newsom, dares to say that he's going to reach into Florida, the freest state. Why? Because he wants to make it like a race between him and DeSantis. Him and DeSantis. Newsom might want to run for office in communist Cuba. Of course, he wouldn't survive, but... That's where his policies would be more embraced. Not here in the United States, that's for sure. God, I hope we never lose this state, Florida. And some of these other states, too. Texas, it's very worrisome. Tennessee, several of these red states. South Dakota, can't remember them all, but you know what I mean. That's why the founders were so brilliant. Mobility, federalism. That's why the Democrats want to get rid of it. Centralism, bureaucracy, and control the culture. We're going to have one of the great patriots of our time, of all times, really. Who not only talks about liberty, but delivers it. Delivers liberty. And takes them on, all of them. 
America's Governor, Governor Ron DeSantis, is scheduled to be on after the break. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Mark Levin, the thunder on the right. Call in now, 877-381-3811. Well, it's a pleasure to have America's governor, Governor Ron DeSantis. How are you, sir? I'm doing wonderful. How are you doing? Very, very well. You won a tough primary the other day, I see. Yeah, you know, we had a a primary. No one's going to mess with you. No, yeah. So, I mean, uh, you run really hard anytime you're on the ballot, but you'd rather be unopposed. So I was unopposed. All of our major offices were unopposed statewide. So we had no competitive statewide races. Uh, We did have a few of the congressional races, primaries, which you helped us with when we did the debates. But that's not statewide. And so what we did is we got involved in these school board races. Because if you think about it, uh, people over the last couple of years, probably more than ever, are very keyed in to how important the education is at the local level and how many of these school systems had diverted from the traditional mission. Uh, the problem in Florida had been there wasn't something that a lot of people had paid attention to, certainly from a party perspective. Uh, we didn't. Conservatives didn't really gravitate towards it. And we also have nonpartisan school board races. And so what would happen in these red counties, you get special interests, unions, people on the left, they'd get behind a candidate, dress that candidate up and act like they share the values of the community. They get on the school board and then they vote left. And so we decided to endorse a slate of candidates. We endorsed 30 candidates, um, 25 of them uh, won, most won outright. A few were going to a runoff in November. Uh, and you ended up changing the complexion of a lot of these school boards. And so now we're going to have majority school boards in a lot of these really important counties that are going to have members that believe in parents' rights, believe the important uh, the purpose of the school systems to educate, not to indoctrinate. They're going to be very supportive of our initiatives involving American civics and workforce education. So it was really a big night for us. Uh, and we're uh, I think it's this is the first step. But I think these are races we've got to be involved in just as a matter of course, because we know the union's going to be doing that every time. Amen. And in fact, you are pushing an entire education agenda, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we really thought it was important to run candidates against school board members who opposed what we did during COVID, to have schools open, to let the kids go to school without being required to wear a mask, and all the other things that flowed from that. And so there were a lot of um, signs that people would put out. If you'd have a, a liberal school board member, she, you know, he or she would have their sign uh, on the side of the road. Someone would put a sign right next to it with an arrow saying, voted to mask your kid. And so that was a huge, huge problem. And so that was part of it. We also have our push for American civics and not having ideology like CRT and woke gender ideology. We've done that at the state level. But, Mark, as you know, it's like if the school districts don't want to comply, like, granted, I can go fight with them, but it's much better to have partners down there. We're all going to be growing in the same direction. And so that's what you have now in a lot of these areas. And, um, you know, it's really, really exciting to see uh, what's going to happen. We are actually one of the states that hasn't hemorrhaged population in our school system just because we were open and because we've really led on a lot of these things uh, over the last few years. And yet, you know, my original state, which is Pennsylvania, but my second original state, Virginia, there we have the biggest county in the state. You're you're familiar with it, Fairfax County. 
And uh, there's really quite the scandal going on there, although they seem very proud of it. They want to make sure they cut parents out on all this transgender stuff. And it starts at kindergarten. They're brainwashing the teachers. Um, it's a little closer in the assembly in Virginia. I think it's uh, 30 to 31 or something like that in the Senate. But, I mean, this really has to be stopped. And you know what, Governor? We can't win every election. So that, that is why it's important that parents are informed, that parents are organized, and parents do push back in all parts of the state. And you've taken the time to do that. Now, you're running against a guy who was a Republican, an independent, and a Democrat uh, who's been an attorney general, governor, and a congressman, and now he wants to be governor again. He did such a crappy job before. And he apparently hates everyone who supports you and anyone who voted for you. And he says, I don't want your vote. Have you ever run against a candidate like that before? No, he's insulting the voters. He's saying that people that have supported us uh, since I've been governor, not just who voted for me in 18, but a lot of the support we've grown because they're parents that cared about their kids' education. And so they support our agenda. It's not because of hate in their heart. You have workers whose jobs were saved because we kept the state open. He wanted to lock it down. Uh, it's not hate in their heart. They're just very appreciative of the leadership. He's also referred to conservative voters as the toothless set. And so this is a guy that is, I think he realizes that this is the end of his career, so he's lashing out, uh, he's attacking people, and uh, this is just not a way to, to, to win an election. But look, the end of the day, he's trying to figure out what to do. This is a guy that is saying right now in real time that Joe Biden is the best president of his lifetime. He says Biden's an exceptional president. He votes with Biden 100 percent of the time in the Congress, including this most recent bill to mobilize 87,000 IRS agents and to impose taxes on various forms of, of energy in the United States. And so what he wants to do is he wants to take Biden's policies and he wants to impose those uh, on the state of Florida. And I think most folks in Florida are not going to want to do that. You also have the situation where the people that are running for governor this year, Mark, for re-election, obviously face COVID, which was the biggest uh, issue that governors have had to face in quite some time. And he opposed every decision I made. In fact, he wrote me a letter in July of 2020 saying that you need to shut the state of Florida down. And had we listened to him and done that, uh, it would have devastated our state. Instead, uh, we ended up being the state that people gravitated towards. We had people working, businesses thriving, uh, and now uh, you know our economic indicators surpassed the national average on virtually everything. And he even called for lockdowns in the summer of 2021, so a year and a half after COVID, he was asked, would you impose a, man, a mass mandate and return to lockdowns? He said, absolutely, I would. Uh, so the state of Florida that we have, the free state of Florida, would not have been that way had he been governor over these last three and a half years. He's become quite the radical, he's, and yet he's utterly unprincipled. He'll, he'll say and do anything. He'll run under any party. He likes power. He likes being governor and so forth. I can't think of five things that guy did when he was governor for eight years. Wasn't he governor eight years? He's been running for office for decades now, and it's kind of like walking across 
uh, Clearwater Beach and leaving not a single footprint. There's just no trace of a, of a policy legacy. It's all about the process of keeping himself in some form of political office. And now, and he has all these different iterations, so it's always hard to know kind of, you know, what he actually believes because he's a chameleon and will take whatever position. But I will say this. He's had a very, very consistent record over the last three, three or four years of supporting Nancy Pelosi in the House of Representatives. He votes with P- Pelosi practically 100 percent of the time, and he's the biggest cheerleader for Joe Biden, uh, probably of anybody in the entire Congress. And he's been very consistent on that. So I will give him credit for the last couple of years. We're talking to Governor Ron DeSantis, America's governor. We're, we're going to hold you over the break, if you don't mind, Governor. And I want to talk to you about another governor, the governor from California who seems obsessed with you. We'll be right back. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. So lately, I've been on a mission to change the way people view their finances and to encourage people to overcome obstacles and adversity. It's just more and more important to me every day. So I've teamed up with the folks at Life Surge. Life Surge is a one-day faith-based event where you'll walk in hungry for success and you'll leave ready to build your resources to leave an impact on others. We're talking faith-fueled finance, growing resources, crushing obstacles, and then, yeah, using it all for something way bigger than yourself. I'll be joining Life Surge in Cincinnati on Saturday, August 3rd. Joining me in Cincinnati is Nick Vujicic, the man with no arms or legs that speaks about his trials and triumphs. Soul surfer and author Bethany Hamilton, Duck Dynasty's Willie Robertson, and author and pastor Craig Groeschel, star of CNBC's The Prophet, Marcus Lemonis, and Bethel Music. That's Life Surge, Cincinnati, on Saturday, August 3rd. Tickets are on sale exclusively at lifesurge.com. I hope to see you there. Our guest is America's governor, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. You know, Governor, I call Florida the freest place on earth, not just the freest state. I can't think of a freer place now that Hong Kong has been gobbled up by the communist Chinese. And so we have a man who has run California into the ground and is a man full of the stupidest ideas that any human being can have, let alone a governor. I mean, they're going to ban cars that run on gasoline now. And he's trying to reach into Florida and trying to make some kind of a, uh, a statement in the state of Florida. My view is, why doesn't he come here campaign door to door and see what the reception's like? Oh, we would love that. 
so it's interesting, Mark. I'm born and raised in Florida, and, and you know, Florida's always attracted people, particularly from the Northeast and the Midwest, but California was not a place that we really ever drew population from, and I can't remember even seeing a California license plate growing up. Well, once Newsom got in, and particularly with his COVID lockdowns, we started seeing all these California license plates. I'll tell you, people in Florida were freaked out about it because we're like, who are these people? Are they coming in from Berkeley and they're all going to vote left? They're actually, overwhelmingly, were disaffected conservatives who were driven off by Newsom's policies. And so I think he sees him hemorrhaging people because California had never lost population from its inception until he became governor. And now they hemorrhage more people than any other state since since COVID. And a lot of these folks are, are productive people. And so they're coming to Florida, Texas, these other states. Uh, and I think that that bothers him, uh, that, they're, that they're leaving his rule. And we are obviously attracting people uh, from all over the country and all over the world, like you said. Um, we actually, in 2021, if you look at all international tourists to, to the United States, 45% of the tourism in the country was to Florida internationally. And so we do, I think, have the reputation that extends far beyond the borders of this country. And I want people all over the country to understand, you reach out to all communities, you reach out to all people, all faiths, all backgrounds. Uh, you're not, you don't build... Uh, these, these like uh, coalitions like the Democrats do. So everybody's at each other's throats. So when this guy, Chris, is running, says he's running on love. What the <laughs> hell does that mean? <laughs> Honestly, it's, it's bizarre. Uh, and especially for a guy that's attacking millions and millions of Floridians. It, it just makes no sense. We, though, I'm the first governor on record that's actually visited all 67 Florida counties, and we've done events there. We've brought uh, support there for infrastructure, drive, whatever whatever communities need. And, you know, I won the vast majority of counties in Florida, but there were counties that didn't vote for me, uh, and I'm still there uh, helping out and, and basically uh, being a governor that wants the state to succeed. Uh, you can't succeed as a state if you're writing off 50% plus uh, of the population. And so it's bizarre. I think he's just way past his prime. I think he's spinning his wheels. Uh, and again, the reason he got into this race was because he wanted to run against me because Florida was open. He thought he could hit me because I wasn't locking down. And that was the reason why he took all those positions. Well, obviously, people in Florida are glad that I made the decisions that I did, so he doesn't have that. So I think he's just grasping at straws to try to throw whatever against the wall and see if something sticks. How is the uh, First Lady of Florida, Casey? We know she went through uh, and has gone through a tough battle with cancer. So she right now is uh, is cancer-free. I mean, as people that have gone through this know, you got to go back and continue to get monitored. But in terms of when, we, when this started with us and she got the diagnosis, uh, what's happened has basically been as, as good as we could have asked for. And I'll tell you, when we made it public, which we debated about whether to do, but she's, she's a public figure, and she does an awful lot for the state of Florida, too, in a variety of ways. We made it public. The outpouring of prayers and support and everything was, was really overwhelming. It lifted her spirits in a major, major way, and I know some of your, your audience was part of that, and we just, on behalf of our family, want to thank everybody uh, for having them and, and her, having her in their thoughts and prayers, and we're, we're in good shape, but, you know, we just, we just keep going, and and uh, keep praying and, and keep doing what uh, what the doctors tell us. You know, the, the media, 
keeps trying to turn you and Trump against each other. Have you noticed that, Governor? Yeah, look, I think that they they look at someone like Christ. Obviously, they want me. They want to beat me. And they look at somebody like Christ and they realize that this guy just doesn't have what it takes. And so I think what they try to do is is try to sow dissension in the ranks of, of the Republican side and hoping that maybe, you know, there would be a fissure. Now, I do think that they were trying to bait somebody to run as an independent um, who would kind of try to, you know, hit me from hit me from various sides. And that didn't work out. Uh, so so we are where we are here. And I think most conservative voters understand what corporate media is up to. And so I don't think it gets any traction with them. I think that they just brush it off. Yeah, and I, I brush it off, too. You're both my friends, but, man, you'd be a great president, too. And he'd be a great president again. My goal right now is we've got to defeat this up other party. Or we're not going to recognize our country. 2022 is a big deal, and it's crucially important. All the people I see in Florida governor they say to me we got to win we got to win we can't afford to lose and i said well let's go out and do it let's go out and do no, it and I you said, know this you're fighting like hell to be governor again no absolutely and not only that you know we have a chance to pick up congressional seats re-elect uh you are u.s senator rubio we have a chance to do even better in these school board races we could have a super majority in the florida legislature which would be very very good so there's a whole host of things that are very important in florida i will tell you this though uh, when i became governor there were close to three hundred thousand more registered democrats in the state of florida than republicans today we're just a hair under 250,000 more Republicans than Democrats. And so we've had over a half a million registration shift in our favor. So my, my hope is if we all turn out, we have the enthusiasm, we get everyone out to vote, uh, I think this could be a historic election, kind of a realigning election in Florida politics, because we've been a, kind of the, the main swing state in the country for how many years. Uh, I think we could realign that to be a, a solid majority uh, Republican state. And you really have your voting system under control here because, you know, I voted in the primary the other day and uh, I mean, it was all done at night. You count the votes as they come in, right? You count the votes. There's no weird stuff going on. Then you have election day. People are voting. You count those votes right away. There's no delays at all. There weren't any yeah, delays. I mean, I, it wasn't like two in had, the morning. We had most of the races, even the close races, were decided around nine o'clock. Um, so it was it was really well done. It's transparent. It's efficient. So we we they have to track the voters who are voting. So when you voted, Mark, if you're a registered Republican, they knew you cast a Republican ballot. They don't know who you voted for, but we know how many Republicans have voted, and we know what the turnout is on an hourly basis on election day, the mail, all that stuff. So you you can kind of get a really good sense. So it makes it very difficult for shenanigans when you have a finite number of votes that you know have been cast it comes to seven o'clock and it's done and then you just have to count what's there so yeah our system's done well we've added more bells and whistles since 2020 we've made ballot harvesting a third degree felony uh, we've banned zuckerbucks and then i just stood up an election fraud uh, and crimes unit in state government and so it started in july i got the funding they've already done 20 prosecutions for illegal votes 
They're going to work on people that double voted. They're also going to go after illegal aliens who voted, which is illegal in Florida. And so people are seeing that, you know what, this law is going to be enforced. And that's, I think, the most important thing of all, because if people really think it'll be enforced, they're going to think long and hard before violating it to begin with. Well, Governor, we're out of time, but uh, we want to invite you back whenever you're interested. We love having you on. The audience loves you, and uh, we really, really appreciate it. Keep up the great work, particularly now that I'm a Floridian. And if, you, and if your audience wants to stay in touch with us, they, they can text FREEDOM to 512345. Text FREEDOM to 512345, and we'd love to keep you up to date on all we're doing down here. Now, let me ask you about that. Freedom to five. Is it T.O. or number two? Freedom no, 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 to no, five. no. It's, it's just te- te- text the word freedom to the number five, one, God. two, three, four, five. Okay. You know, I'm so stupid when it comes to this stuff. All right, Governor. Thanks very much. And Mr. Producer, let's put that let's put that out there for the world to see. Take care of yourself. All right, Mark. Bye-bye. Keep up the great work. All right. God bless. He's also an incredibly nice guy. He really is an incredibly nice guy. Very, very down to earth. I think that man is a future, don't you, Mr. Producer? You know, when you look at somebody like Ron DeSantis, he's a young man in his 40s, has a beautiful family, is able to balance family and politics The guy is as honest as the day is long. He is absolutely committed to his principles. He stuck to his principles through thick and thin, like the virus, because our principles work. We don't need to just talk about them. They work. And it really is fantastic. He really has shown the way for so many. That's why when you look at his opponent here, this Christ... He's old school loser. Or when you look at people like Larry Hogan or Mitt Romney or people like that, what exactly, what exactly have they done other than get reelected and be able to tamp down somewhat in the case of Maryland and Hogan, the Democrats? They don't change things. This is the problem we have in Washington. They don't change things. McConnell doesn't change things. He plays... Plays defense all the time. All right, I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Hello, America. We're going to have a lot of top candidates now that the coast is cleared on these general elections that we need to win. We're going to have our buddy Lee Zeldin on. We're going to have our buddy Adam Laxalt on, Ron Johnson, Mike Lee, Dr. Oz, get Herschel Walker, get J.D. Vance back. And this will mostly be in uh, hour two or three. But we've got to do our part here, considering the reach of this program, to save the country. To save the country. Governors, senators, certain members of Congress. I can't. I can't turn this into GOP radio, though. I can't have, you know, five guests a week or five guests a day. I just can't do it. Um, but we'll do our part. This I can promise you. And I know you'll do yours. 
I know you're listening from your own town and your own state, but these are big elections that affect us nationwide. These senators, they vote on matters that affect you. Same with these House members. I don't care if you're in California, you're in New York, Illinois, Florida, Texas, wherever you are. These are important. And we're lucky that we have conservative talk radio. If you ever miss my show on radio or forever preempted, you know where to find us on the podcast, as well as satellite, as well as direct stream on app. Can't miss us. Easy to find. All right, Mr. Producer, to whom shall I speak? The great WMAL Chuck, Springfield, Virginia. Go right ahead. Hey, Mark. Yeah, I just wanted to say, wouldn't uh, this student loan uh, forgiveness be a breach of contract law in that I didn't make a contract with uh, any student? I I know, but the contractor is the federal government. So it's not about you specifically. This is how they do it. The government's not going to sue itself. And you don't have any standing to sue it. Don't blame me. That's what the Supreme Court said. Well, okay. I'm I'm just yeah, sure that they can yeah, I agree steal with our you. money. And they are. They're stealing over three hundred billion. Now I'm hearing it's close to half a trillion of your money, of your kids' money, your grandkids' money, and they're giving it to people who not only didn't earn it, they're giving it to people who took out a loan and made a contractual promise, as you point out, sir, to pay it back. Now it's our fault. Now it's on our backs. It's outrageous. It's disgusting. It's a payoff by Biden to his uh, base. You'll notice all these deals are the same damn thing. Tens of billions of dollars in that last package that they passed to give to their radical left-wing groups. Hundreds of billions of dollars to subsidize their solar panel uh, propeller heads as they, as they attack fossil fuels and put their foot on the throat of the fossil fuel industry. They are subsidizing the other industries. And then, of course, their redistribution of wealth which often is from poorer people to richer people because that's really who their base is, despite all the lies about, all oh, the rich people who are Republicans. Really? Thanks for your call, my friend. Ladies and gentlemen, we salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, emergency personnel, truckers, the men and women, the men and women in Taiwan and Ukraine, of which we need to speak more, of whom we need to speak more. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you all right here, Radio Free America. See you tomorrow.